So if you feel like you are the only person that's gone through this ever in the world, it's going to be more isolating. So can we make connections for young people with other young people? That is very healing. And sometimes they don't want it, but make it possible because essentially they really need their peer group. So can we help them understand that they have others they can reach out to that might be more age appropriate for them? And the world offers us that opportunity. Hello, my friends, Lisa Kefauver here, creator and host of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast, a show that explores the expansiveness and pervasiveness of grief in our lives. 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives. I'm no exception, with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. And yet, we are so grief illiterate, and that's causing us all so much harm. So through my work at Reimagining Grief and this show, I'm on a mission to change the narratives of grief, one conversation at a time. I've had the privilege of getting to know renowned social worker, researcher, and educator Barbara Jones over the past few years. And while we've had plenty of conversations like the one you're going to hear today off the air, but I wanted to share her wisdom with all of you. In today's episode, Barbara shares her personal experiences with loss, as well as the deep wisdom she's gained in her career, working across systems and disciplines, with her primary research interest focusing on improving care for children, adolescents, and young adults with cancer and their families. Her role as educator and researcher spans multiple institutions, from the Institute for Collaborative Health Research and Practice at the Steve Hicks School of Social Work, to Dell Medical School's Livestrong Cancer Institutes, to the first-of-its-kind Department of Health Social Work, and as founding steering committee member of the UT Austin Center for Health Interprofessional Practice and Education, with colleagues at Dell Medical School, School of Nursing, and the College of Pharmacy. In our conversation today, we explore a wide range of topics from grief in the adolescent oncology population, the innovations she's seeing in cancer care to help address the whole person, not just the disease, the very real and frankly frightening moral distress and empathetic strain our healthcare professionals are under today, and so much more. I can't wait for you to meet her. Today's episode is sponsored by Mirror Care Consultants. We all need help sometimes. That's a universal truth. Mirror's dedicated and compassionate staff of life care managers support their clients, their families, friends, and caregivers through their care journeys. Whether it be a progression in their decline, end of life, or the loss of a loved one, times which can be overwhelming and difficult to know just what to do with their loved one's care. Their licensed clinicians and social workers help navigate and provide solutions for care management and provide support during what can be a difficult and challenging time. You can learn more by visiting www.mirrorcareconsultants.com. They even offer a free 30-minute consultation by contacting info at mirrorcareconsultants.com. You can follow them on Facebook at Mirror Care Consultants too. 
Y'all, I am so excited to have Barbara Jones in the room with me today. Barbara, welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. We've been planning this for a long time, right? I'm so excited to be here with you this morning. Yeah. So you guys probably have already heard Barbara Jones has been doing incredible work in the fields of grief and loss, particularly around adolescent grief and has been involved in some really cutting-edge institutions that are really helping us think about patient care and patient care delivery. So we're going to explore all those facets today, but you know, because we've gotten to know each other over the past few years, that I'm deeply curious about the origin stories of people's grief beliefs and really helping to make visible and name what it is that we come to believe about grief and how that does help us, harm us, be neutral, and just help us become more visible so that we might, A, discover what we're passing along to our children, which you and I have talked about before, but also to help reframe how we might show up better for ourselves and those that we love. So those origin stories, in my mind, come often from our earliest memories of grief in our childhood and the ways in which parental figures or adults in our life were talking about or modeling grief. Does a memory come to mind for you when I bring that up? Absolutely. And, you know, I share your strong belief that understanding these grief origin stories helps us understand where we struggle and where we thrive now. So I love the question. Oh, good. In fact, I mentioned this to you before we got together. Fun story, I got my daughter to listen to your podcast, and she asked me the question the other day in the car, so I had some prep time. But I love <laughs> that we had that conversation. That was a nice, wonderful outcome of listening to your podcast. So when I thought about it, you know, I was raised by a single mom, and we were super close. And I remember being very little and coming home from something, I don't remember what it was, and my little cat, Tigger had died. And I think pet loss is very real. Absolutely. And we about I it was on the a, show. a yeah. little one. And this was my first significant loss, other than, you know, more familial losses, those types of things, but a first death loss. And I came home and my mother sat me down and said, There's something I need to tell you. And she walked me through what happened. And she had waited so that we could go to the vet together with the cat, kept me involved, let me have agency, gave me full information, even as, I don't know, I was, you know, little school age, so somewhere six to eight. Okay. And so really was not afraid about talking about death or grief with a young child and modeled for me that if you are calm and loving and give people the information, including and maybe especially children, yeah. the information that they need, and then support them, they can handle the loss. And so I tell that story because I hadn't thought about it in a long time. And then I realized it's not at all accidental that I ended up specializing in children's grief, in talking with young people about grief and loss, in having the courage to stay present with their feelings, that that was modeled to me at a very early age in my first death loss with my mom. And I'm really grateful to her for that modeling. I don't know how she, it was not a time when we talked to kids, even about, it was more like, yeah, the cat ran away. You know, that would have been more how you would went have done to a it. farm. Yeah, exactly. The whole farm story. Um, but no, she just went right in and told me exactly what happened. And even with messaging like, you didn't do anything wrong, it wasn't your fault, like all of that preemptive work that we teach parents and caregivers to give to children. So I thought that was remarkable when I look back on it. And I do think it actually ended up framing my career in a way I couldn't have drawn the line at that time. It's so interesting because I think, first of all, shout out to your mom and, you know, as a 
fellow single mom. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I say extra shout out for that. And it just goes to show the kind of influence and impact that we can have. And I just want to say, if you're listening and your parents did some version that sounds like the opposite of what Barbara's mom did, when I ask these questions or ask you, you know, you might, listener, consider doing exploring this for yourself. This isn't an invitation to bash on our parents, mm-hmm. right? This isn't, you know, exactly. I think people worry that they're being critical of their parents. I believe our parents did the best they could with the information they knew from the grief lessons they were modeled from their parents and so on. And I do this for a living. And if I could go back and do something differently when I had to walk in and tell my seven-year-old that her dad was dead, I probably would, right? So it's less about judgment. It's just more about, oh, what did that teach me? And are those beliefs serving me or harming me? And that's why your question is so profound, because we only do what we've been taught and what we've seen. And I know when I was working clinically with children and grief, and I ran a children's grief group, and I would talk to parents all the time about we begin with self-forgiveness and self-compassion. We're all doing the best we can. We don't live in a culture that models healthy, loving, fearless conversation about grief, which is why— Or any quote-unquote hard thing, by the way. Yes, exactly. We like to stick our head in the sand in this culture, yeah. Which is why this podcast is so wonderful, because you're modeling that. And so if we don't get the message that, one, it's okay to talk about it, and you're not going to hurt your child, and you have the ability to handle it, how would we know that? Like, that's when I look back, I have such reverence for my mom for knowing that. It could have just been that we were so close that she knew— you could handle She knew it. our relationship yeah. well enough yeah. to trust that and trust us, but it was unusual, which is why it's remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. And again, just we have to make visible what we believe so that we can understand the impact of those beliefs and so that we have a shot at making some choices about whether those beliefs are serving us or not. So you just kind of beautifully teed up that this early experience You know, of course, when you look back, I'm sure at six, you didn't decide I'm going to grow up and be a grief and loss expert in social Social work, you know. Yeah, Yeah. there was a lot. But I have a similar when I look back and I can I can draw the thread all the way back to me being 15 and being very passionate about holding space and bearing witness and that through line coming through to the work that I do today. I wouldn't have known that at the time in the deepest, darkest pain of my life. So fast forwarding a few years between six and eight and graduate school and becoming a fellow social worker. What, what? Shout out to the fellow social workers out there. Yeah, the downside of a podcast is you can't see all of our minimal encouragers and nodding going <laughs> exactly, on here. Yeah. Exactly. So right from the start in your studies in social work, grief and loss, and particularly in childhood and adolescence, what was your earliest passion or objective when you were early, maybe after you got your degrees and What was that first work like? Well, here's a funny story. So when I worked in between my undergraduate degree and my graduate degree, and I often tell the story that in my bachelor's degree, I got, I majored in psychology and minored in women's studies and sociology, which really seems like I was trying to find social work. Yes, <laughs> so exactly. Then I, so then I worked for a few years, and I actually thought I was going to work. I had was working with at-risk youth and youth that were involved of uh, exploitation and were involved of at risk for homelessness or further exploitation. So that's what I thought I was going to do. 
So I sort of had the youth thing, yeah. but I didn't know it was going to be grief, although obviously there's a ton of grief in that course, young group. Yeah. And I didn't know that it was going to be so focused on health. So I went to school and sort of fun story is that when I graduated, I thought, by the time I graduated, I thought, yeah, I think I want to do hospice social work. And so I applied and didn't get the job. And it's sort of ironic that my entire career has really been focused on hospice and palliative social work. But, you know, I say that because sometimes when we know what our path is, and sometimes we're not ready for it, and that's okay. Yeah. So if you oh, that's beautiful. start out your career and you're like, I want to do this, and somebody says, yeah, no, I don't think so, it doesn't mean you're not going to do it. It just means it's not going to happen at that moment. Right. And or so, it'll take a different form. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 So my first job after my graduate degree was actually working for Mothers Against Drunk Driving. And I was a victim services coordinator for New York State, which you may not know that that job existed. It was essentially grief work yeah. and grief social work. And what was amazing about the organization is that they had access to a number of luminaries and thought leaders in grief and loss at the time. Mm -hmm. And so even as a brand new social worker, I would be exposed to Alan Wolfelt, Ken Doka, and I don't mean as reading, I mean, we would gather, you know, yeah, they would gather all yeah. of the folks that were doing victim services and bring these luminaries and grief together, Bob Niemeyer, et cetera. And we would learn. And I really realized how much I wanted to continue to do grief and loss work because it felt like it was so powerful and we could help so much, even if it takes so long. Yeah. Well, I love that story. And also, wow, to be a fly on the wall in some of those rooms. What oh, an amazing, amazing conversation. But I loved what you said there, you know, maybe slight tangential to grief as a sneaky bitch. But I think that's something really powerful about what you said is when you can tune into sort of what your inner calling is and your inner knowing is, I think we get so caught up in this step-by-step, -step, next level, you got to always be achieving in a linear path, which of course we also believe that BS about grief too. But I think in terms of career, we do that. And I love that you just, again, gave us permission or this reminder that sometimes the path is curvy and circular and, you know, zigzaggy even. But if we listen inward to kind of what our true calling is and we don't get hooked on the packaging, mm -hmm. kind of like what it exactly looks like, then we can find our way. And I am absolutely living proof of that in the work that I'm doing at Reimagining Grief and with this show around that through line around holding space and bearing witness. But I would never have conceived of this work. So, yeah. Yeah, I didn't get the interview. Like, yeah. I couldn't get an interview. Yeah, you're like, come on, I'm knocking at the door. Yeah. Couldn't get an interview. And then have had the opportunity to do a lot of work nationally around palliative care and social work, but could not get in yeah. the door. So that was okay. But other doors open and other that's doors that open. experience. Yeah. So I've gotten to know you over the years now in your role with UT Del Med, Live Strong Cancer Institutes, which I know you listeners know I've had um, Rachel Carnahan Metzger, who was with a different Del Med children's palliative social worker and to talk with folks around in the community. But I'd love if you spend a little time helping folks understand the calm model that is taking place at Livestrong Cancer Institutes. At, I'm sorry, it's the longest title ever, UT Del Med Livestrong Cancer <laughs> Institutes. We say LCI. Okay, LCI. That okay, yeah, that helps. Try that. Because first of all, fun story, I was sort of around in the pre-creation when I was running a nonprofit here that helps cancer patients that I co-founded years ago. But also, I think it really begins to speak to this broader work that I'm thinking about all the time is just how do we show up, of course, with empathy and compassion and everything we do, but also how do we shift medicine to see the whole person and then the whole, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like 
the whole galaxy of people that kind of surround the person. And I think the calm model is exactly that. So tell us a little bit about the calm model and how you think about that being the connection to an improved, more grief literate way of delivering medicine. Absolutely. And shout out to Rachel, who introduced us, actually. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Was a former student of mine. So wonderful. I love the smallness of it all. So the calm model is amazing, if I (laughs) get to say that, because I have been so honored to work in this space. And what you know is that my clinical background is in pediatric, adolescent, young adult oncology. So that's where I landed clinically and where my passion really is and where my research and teaching has all focused. So as we were building out Dell Medical School, Livestrong, the foundation, made a very generous gift. And we were able to create the Livestrong Cancer Institutes, hence the name. And as a part of that, to hire an incredible director, Gail Eckhart, who came to us from Colorado and build out from the ground what would we want cancer care to look like? And so Gail and I met early on, and she had this incredible career where she was so attentive and sensitive to her patients and their families, but realized that there were so many issues that she wanted to do more for. But in her role, couldn't always do that. And then I had all this passion and commitment for the psychosocial needs of individuals living with cancer and their families. And particularly, I focus, again, on the younger group. So we came together, and it's funny, we were telling the story yesterday in another setting, and it was, I can still see the meeting with her. And she wasn't even... I don't even know if she, how long she'd been here. It was pretty early on. We met on UT and had lunch, yeah. and like it was synergistic. We just sort of had that wonderful connection and quickly began to talk about how might we design cancer care differently with the patients at the very center in true form. And so everybody wants to do that. But the luxury of building from the ground up means you can try some new things. You can Be pilot. experimental, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So everybody in cancer is putting the patient at the center and wants to do so. But to be able to sort of build the model without anything that you have to deconstruct was fascinating and wonderful. So very early on, she invited me to serve as her associate director of social sciences and community-based research. And she also included Becca Shear, who you know, as her associate director of patient experience. And the two of us became sort of a dynamic duo and went out to the community and said, and both of us had worked in this community for a number of years, what would you want to see? I remember sitting in some of those meetings. How would you build it? And then we had town halls and and again, this very community-engaged process for how do we create cancer care. And out of that sprung the COM model. And the COM model is Cancer Life Reimagined. And we give Gail all credit for that. Mm -hmm. And it really, what it does is flip the model. So instead of going to the doctor and possibly getting a referral to all the aspects of your life that you're dealing with. And driving around town. And driving around town, which can be difficult here in Austin, can be difficult anywhere. But that fragmentation of services, instead of that, we put everything in the same place and we lead with what matters most to patients and families. And this work was also very much informed by the Value Institute at Dell Medical School. So shout out to them as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And they really, their research has shown that what matters most to patients and families is capability, comfort, and calm. And so together, we all work together to build this model and we lead with psychosocial care. We lead with what matters most. What is it that gives your life meaning? What is it important to you to do? How do we build your care around that as opposed to here's the care, try to fit your life around the care? 
Absolute flipped model. And making assumptions about what the wishes are of the patient and the family. I mean, I think of like an Atul Gawande, like yeah. what is the quality of your life, right? Yeah. So, you know, with a very strong oncology social worker, yay, yay. <laughs> um, Angela in the team with a strong palliative care focus with the broad brush of palliative care, not meaning end of life, but meaning right. reduction I of symptoms. I try to tease this out on the yeah. show often, right? P- people yeah. confuse Quality of life. palliative and hospice, and palliative is really about reducing suffering and pain, which yes. can happen at the end of life, but can be delivered at any point along someone's care. And know? increasing quality of life. Yeah, exactly. What do the patient and family need and want? And so that flipped model where the medicine is part of what you get, but we recognize that you are human and you need whole person care that really addresses your needs and you need to be in the driver's seat of that. So that's been what we've been working on and studying and talking about and getting excited about. And we're also, you and I had talked about this, but we're also really focusing as well on how do we deliver those services specifically to young adults with cancer and their families. So it's been an amazing honor to be able to help Gail and the team co-create this patient-focused model of care. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating to watch, and I get the privilege of sometimes dropping in and offering support or workshops or trainings, and uh, it's just fascinating to see that in action. I'm curious if, of course, through your research, which is be- precedes Calm and the Institute, but also is continuing, and also your clinical delivery of services, when you think about the adolescent community in particular, whether they're facing maybe a terminal diagnosis or a very medically complex case— What have you learned both clinically but in research about the anticipatory grief and ambiguous loss maybe that both the patient and the families are experiencing and that what interventions are helpful or not particular maybe to that population? I feel like we've had a lot of conversations on this show about families with young kids who have died and talking with kids about death and then adults, but I think there's something developmentally unique, I imagine, to that population. Well, absolutely. And when we think about adolescents and young adults with cancer for one group, um, you know, the NCI defines that group as ages 15 to 40 or 39. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, when you hit 40. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Sorry. Not a young adult anymore. (laughs) You're out. But 15 to 39, which is how many developmental stages are in 15 to 39? In other parts of the world, it's defined differently. Like in Australia, it's 15 to 25, you know. But the NCI here in the U.S., when we're talking about young adults, adolescents, young adults with cancer, we're talking 15 to 39. And part of the reason that that group was carved out and looked at, and again, the field of AYA oncology is actually in its adolescence in some ways. It's (laughs) really pretty young because what we as providers and what young people started to say to us themselves was, you're missing us. We go to get care. And this is just from the moment of diagnosis. This is before we get to anything else, before we even get to grief and loss, which I, of course, do want to talk about. But there's a loss often in a diagnosis, right? Yes, absolutely. You're missing us because... We're either treated in a children's hospital, where we're sitting next to seven-year-olds. It's Winnie the Pooh and Disney, or we're treated in an adult center where we don't look like anybody else in there, and it's AARP magazines. And nobody has thought about the very unique off-time experience of getting a cancer diagnosis or any diagnosis, for that matter, that is life-altering. Which, by the way, is increasing, right, in this country, the rates of cancer diagnosis in particular in that population. Absolutely. And part of that is because we've become more aware of it. So we need to design services. We need to study the biology of cancers in this young group. Some of them are pediatric cancers, but some of them are adult cancers that are specific to adults of this young group. So we need to study the biology and study how to treat these cancers. Part of the reason we have such high success rates in survival rates in pediatric cancer is because most children 
with cancer are on clinical trials so we can study and improve care. Right. But if you have a group of young people, half of whom are treated in a children's hospital, half of whom are treated in an adult hospital, it's hard to We're not learning. We're mm-hmm. not learning. Yeah. And then we need to design services that are specific for this age group. And again, it is a time of growth, a time of Emerging independence, differentiation. Emerging young adulthood, separating from your parents. And, you know, any type of illness, grief, loss will make you often regress and may make you actually need the care of your parents. So young adults who are living on their own are suddenly sort of thrust back into their parents' home and trying to figure out how to deal with this very difficult diagnosis at the same time that they're trying to emerge. And they're age cohorts are going on. And so it's really off-putting and it really has a number of unique psychosocial stressors, not the least of which is social isolation, which is so developmentally inappropriate for this age group. They need their peers. So that's true whether you're looking at a diagnosis or you're looking at grief and loss. And so even before we talk about you know, we can talk about the diagnosis itself, but then when we think about grief and loss, grief for adolescents and young adults is also different than it is for children and different than it is for adults for all these same developmental reasons, that they need to be around peers, that they're old enough to understand, you know, the existential experiences going on to them, but they may not have had enough life experience to really cope yet with what they're facing. And so they often feel very alone, very isolated very misunderstood. They can't necessarily go to their parents because their parents are grieving as well. They may not be able to go to their non-grieving peers and certainly not to younger. So they feel very alone. And which is why some of the first work I had the opportunity to do in grief and loss was grief groups. And that's why we find grief groups to be so important, particularly for adolescents. For that population. Mm -hmm. They're great for children as well. I love grief groups as a model because, again, nobody speaks to children better than other children. Nobody speaks to adolescents better than other adolescents. And to to see, I mean, just thinking about, you know, my last conversation that I released on the show was with John Powell, whose work is on othering and belonging. And I think absolutely when you're thinking for anybody who's going through grief and loss, the isolation is, you know, the loss of those secondary relationships and feeling othered in the world is its own loss. So just as you were talking about that kind of span of time, the sort of loss, I mean, I think just a diagnosis is a loss of the sense of who we were before the diagnosis. Then there's that sort of loss of normal teenage future, expected future, Mm -hmm. and then the losses of those different relationships. So, And the interruption to the life, right? So if you're 15, if you're 20, you're launching, you're trying to start new things. If all of that just comes to breaks and you can't do that, you have to put that on pause, there is significant loss there because this is a time when you are developing your identity, your education, your work life, your family, relationships, relationships, you know, intimacy, all of those things are being developed and all of those things are interrupted by a cancer diagnosis. When we come back, I asked Barbara to share more about the need for adolescents to be seen and held in the face of their diagnosis, their ambiguous losses, even their anticipatory grief. She explained how desperately they don't want to be fixed or corrected or minimized, just held and acknowledged, and why that can be so hard for so many of us adults to do. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, Barbara Jones. So I think often about if somebody would have just named for me 
what that was, just the power of naming. So as you've worked in your career and in your research, what are you doing around naming these, you know, without overwhelming, of course, the patient, but like naming these expected experiences of loss and introducing sort of strategies and coping, both for maybe the adolescent, but also for the families? Yeah, no, that's great. Well, first of all, in this, I haven't had a chance to listen to your most recent podcast, but I'm really (laughs) excited about it. Everybody needs to be seen. Everybody needs to be held and seen, bear witness. That's, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's, the, our bio, that's our human need is to belong. So the first thing we need to do is have a space where the adolescent young adult can describe what their experience is in a way that they feel truly seen, not corrected, not managed. Not tried to fix. Not tried to fix. Um, not over positive reframe, you know. Uh, Toxic positivity. Exactly. Yeah. None of that. Just this really sucks. I mean, I don't think I used... There was my clinical intervention right there. Write a book on it. You know, right. much of my clinical intervention with adolescents was like, this sucks. I think about that all the time. I, you know, I see folks one-on-one for grief support. And of course, I like to believe that I offer a lot of insights and wisdom and skills and tools. But I think, honestly, the number one thing I do is look them in the eye and say, like, this, it's my show, swear word coming, fucking sucks. Yep. I it hate does. that this happened to you. And then the next step is, and I'm not going to try to fix it. I can help you hold it. Oof. I can help you hold it if you want me to help you. Yeah. If not, I can just see it. Yeah. And help you figure out what you want to do next. We can't rush. We can't rush. We can't rush. Oh, Grief but is we a like slow to, mover. We like to Grief just, is a turtle. Grief is a slow mover. We like linear and we like quick and we like timelines and yep. fix. Yep. When you were just describing that kind of bearing witness to the adolescent, let's say in this case, who has diagnosis, although if you're listening, this applies in you know, for every kind of instance of grief or loss. But when you're doing that practice of of seeing, you know, of holding space and and naming that, are you doing that? I mean, I'm thinking of us modeling a conversation right now. So are you doing that in the presence of family so that they can also understand that? Because I mean, as a parent, you know this, we're both parents. Our instinct is to fix and to right. correct and right. to take away the pain. So how is that education happening for the family? That's a great question. Sometimes you are. The other thing I want to say about the witnessing of the trauma and the experience yeah. and the loss, there's one of the two other things actually I want to say about this. I told you if you start asking me about grief and loss <laughs> that, and adolescence, I'll be here girl, all day. Girl, this but, is my show. Um, this is it. Two other things. One is that the other thing you need to know, and I think this is true for children as well, is like, also cancer isn't the only thing going on in their life. So don't right. only talk about it, right? Like, so yeah. yes, this sucks. And also, what else can we talk about? Yeah. What else is interesting to them? You know, don't always be like every single, how are you doing? Like, and the cancer yeah. also sucks, but not just because it's cancer in their body, but it sucks because now they can't go to prom or yeah. now they can't have yeah. an intimate relationship. But or, it's not the, it, also, you don't want to always lead with this yeah. sort of like, how are you doing? You know, maybe they're doing fine that day and maybe they want to talk about something else or maybe they just want to go for a drive in the car. Or like, have an identity beyond, and like, we absolutely. don't say I am cancer. I have cancer, but I also... Am and have these other things. And my research really showed this identity paradox among this young group. Okay, so tell me a little bit more about Meaning that. Meaning that am I, I don't want to always, particularly for those who survive, I don't want to always be the young person with cancer. Who am I now? How do I redefine who I am post-cancer? Especially if you can't see that I had cancer. When do I sort of come out about having cancer? There's a real identity shift that has to happen after cancer too. And that also needs some support. I mean, to me, you know, you've heard me share my sort of grief metaphor about our storied lives and grief is the work of kind of rewriting and living in to the story of our lives. And that's exactly what you're yes. talking about there. It's yes. really helping the young person wrestle with this new 
and emerging and becoming version of themselves, which is probably never more present than an adolescent when they were already new and emerging and becoming. So the other thing that I think about with this group, and this is true with anybody, and this actually relates to a podcast you had with Kristen Neff, is tapping into the common humanity. So if you feel like you are the only person that's gone through this ever in the world, it's going to be more isolating. So can we make connections for young people with other young people? That is very healing. And sometimes they don't want it, but make it possible because essentially they really need their peer group. So can we help them understand that they have others they can reach out to that might be more age appropriate for them? And again, the world offers us that opportunity. One of the first really breakthrough places I saw this happen, and this is years ago before we were on all of our devices as much as we are, and that was Planet Cancer, which was a great organization that really created a social platform for young people to connect with each other. And there's been many others since then, but there's lots of opportunities to connect young people to other young people if they need that. So, but you asked me about parents and about family and As we know, there's no hard and fast rule book. You know, I told this beautiful story about my mom, and I'm happy that I got to share that. And she really was an amazing mother. But none of us are perfect in our parenting. And that's the other thing I want to say to parents. You're not perfect. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to want to do over. You're going to wish you said something different, wish you were more patient. But ultimately, it is, again, about bearing witness to the process for this young person as they make sense or not of what they're going through. And it's not ours. And that is the thing we have to tell ourselves over and over again. It uh, really which is an especially ours. difficult but important message for us parents to take in. Yeah. I believe I said it to myself this week uh-huh, about something. Uh-huh. Yeah. Whatever my 20-year-old was going through, I had to say to myself, oh, this that's not mine. mine. That's yeah. hers. And that's a learned lesson. And we weren't dealing with this, you know. Right. So I think that it's okay to recognize. And it's okay, especially for young adults, for parents to model not knowing everything too and say, yeah. I'm in new territory too here. All I want to do is support you. And I might get that wrong sometimes because I'm your parent. And that makes sort of the mama bear in me come out. What do you need? Do you need space? Do you want to talk about it? Do you want to talk about something else? I love, you know, I'm all about modeling thus, you know, the platform of the show. So I love that you invited, you know, parents to find sort of compassion for themselves, that they're not expert, because we also live in a very expert overload kind of culture that we have this expectation that we should be expert at everything somehow magically all the time. And so for them to sort of name and model to their kids, at the same time wanting to say, but I'm here with you, so you don't be, you know, you don't have to do this alone. Like, we're going to figure this out together along with the medical team. Can you speak a little bit more on the, for the parents who are involved with someone who's ill? So there's that invitation for them to let go of having to be expert and for them to sort of model for their kids, hey, you know, I don't know, but I'm going to be here alongside you. What about the self-compassion they need to have for their own grief, by the way? So that's the next thing is that as parents, we always have to find our own sources to deal with our grief. That is not our child's work to do, right? So we can both model and have an adult relationship. That's very healthy. And we need to get our sources of support. So for parents, I would say, make sure that you don't reduce your life so much that you don't have good friends, an outlet, something fun, somebody who gets you. Whether you want to talk or not, same thing. This really sucks, parents. This really sucks that you're going through this. So who can you sit with who can hold that with you who isn't going to try to fix it for you? And so parents need to find that for themselves too. And sometimes that's a professional person. Sometimes that is a friend. Sometimes that is other, just like we talked about with the young folks, that is other parents who who are going through this. Although that can be tricky too, but, you know, 
whatever it is that is supportive of them so they can get their emotional needs met so that they can be bolstered to be there for their children. Yeah. You know, I say often that if we want to think about how we can be the best grief supporters, it starts with actually holding space and bearing witness for your own grief. Absolutely. And I think part of our struggle when we show up and cannot be a sort of compassionate vessel for other people's pain is because we don't have that actual lived experience of what that feels like for our own pain. So and that work is so important and tricky and difficult in the time when you're pressed you know, to the edge maybe with a diagnosis. And it is natural for parents to actually want to take their child's pain away. It, that that's is the, it's like almost biologically, yeah, yes. Actually, it might be, right? It is so natural to want yeah. to do that, and yet we cannot. Yeah. And what I often say when I'm talking to clinicians as well, when we think about young people and grief, is that we will also have the instinct to want to take their pain away. And not only can we not do so, really it's theirs. They have a right to go through it. We need to support them and we need to watch for any you know, signs of distress that need other support for sure. But we don't want to rush somebody through their experience. Yeah. Uh, we want to hold space for that and then also help to build the pieces that they imagine another aspect of their life, that they don't get stuck there either, right? Yeah. So you want to be able to... A lot of the young people that I've worked with, they get to the point where the story of their cancer, the story of their loss is one part of their story, not the whole story. Yeah. I mean, our life, that's how I that's think about grief is the grief doesn't necessarily shrink or this identity. We just build a bigger story around it exactly. over time. And same thing, if even if you have someone who survives, you know, a cancer diagnosis. So the story is not the whole defining aspect of this person's identity. Well, I think about that, the danger of the single story, you know, a DJ, yes. Chimamanda, a DJ. So yep. tell me a little bit about either clinically or through your research, what are the kinds of grief and loss we're seeing in adolescents? And how is it sort of manifesting? How would we know okay. that our adolescents are grieving if we're thinking about the anticipatory grief? And we can go beyond even cancer. So if they've lost a sibling, a friend, a parent, what what are we seeing? What How will we know we're seeing grief and loss in that population? Well, the truth is that it can be hard because it's such a time of identity growth and emerging young adulthood anyways. Right. So they are changing. They're supposed to be changing. Right. <laughs> like that's normative. So that's happening. But it depends on the young person. So some, like anyone, there's a variability. Mm -hmm. Some young people are like, let me tell you what I'm feeling and thinking right now. Although I find that at least clinically, it is more often that if you're not staring at them, like you're doing another activity. It, yes. It's what, you know, when I used to work in a youth shelter, really now going back to that first job after my undergraduate degree, I would always offer to drive the young people to appointments because oh. I got all the stuff. In the car, that's Every where Every major happened. conversation I've ever had with my daughter from like, you know, where do babies come from to death, sex, everything has happened in the car. I think there's a captivity, but also not the intensity of the eye gaze. Yeah. As adults, we want to stare at them and yeah. say, what are you feeling? And yeah. they're like, I'm feeling like I wish you'd stop staring at me is what I'm feeling. <laughs> and so we got to find another way okay. to connect with them. So that's one thing. But it can manifest a lot of different ways. So it can manifest in actual emotions that we see. All of them, sadness, anger, numbness, frustration, shock, irritation. Mm -hmm. And then it can manifest in behavioral ways like underperforming overperforming, right? You can see both. You yeah. can see somebody who decides to become perfect. You can see somebody who shuts down completely. Yeah. And so it's about, if you're a parent, it's about knowing your own child and checking in, but also giving them the space to get through it. If you're a clinician, it's about asking the questions. How yeah. are you? How are you really? 
yeah. not always buying it, you know, sort yeah. of going Being a, a little, little probing deeper. a little mm-hmm. deeper. Yeah. Yep. And recognizing, again, this goes beyond adolescent grief. And I try to talk about this as often as I can through my work at Reimagining Grief and on this show is grief is not, of course, as you were just saying, sadness. But also, it's not even just our emotional life. It's cognitive and physiological and stress and, you know, like, and relational. It has all of these different ways of which we're impacting. I remember, so I had Rachel and Sierra Herbert on my show talking about death with kids. And she had shared this story, which I thought was like an interesting example about she had noticed that the kid had gone from listening to like whatever rap and then towards the end of what turned out to be the end of his life was listening to sort of Christian music and Mm -hmm. was like, Hey, parents, why do you think that changed? What changed? Yeah, so pay attention to changes, absolutely. And don't assume, now I'm going to go younger than the adolescents, and again, this comes from the question you asked me at the beginning, don't assume that young children don't understand, can't understand. Children fear most what we hide from them. You ever want to get your child's attention, and this is really more for the younger ones, just go in the other room and whisper. And they are like a <laughs> magnet, right? So they fear that which we keep from them, and they make up stories that are often worse than what's happening. So that's why I really think it is important to be honest right. with kids I mean, in an age-appropriate yeah, way. Totally. Yep. Totally. And so, and I remember that from working with young people with cancer and their siblings uh, when I was, you know, providing pediatric yeah. oncology social work services is that, you know, they understood a lot more. Yeah. Then sometimes the adults around them knew because maybe those adults hadn't gone through it, or maybe it is so hard to see your child in that much pain yeah. and to realize they actually are contending with death and loss right now. Yeah. And we have to keep checking in, by the mm-hmm. way. I mean, which is also a golden rule of grief support. I say show up, shut up, and listen, and keep showing up, and it's, right? Because it evolves, right? Our grief metabolizes and integrates and new maybe diagnoses or new interventions and new losses, secondary losses or friendships bring up new expressions. And at some point you can, and not early on, but at some point you can gently encourage them to look at themselves and what are the ways they've grown through this experience? Yeah. What are the things that surprise them about their own strength? How are they different? What did this person mean to them? Like you can elicit the resilience. Yes. And that sort of not Growth. right away. No, yeah. You no, know, because you will not. We cannot rush soon. us into yes. that. But you can, if you can get to a point, and this gets past that single story, yeah. so that they start to build their own strength and resilience and they recognize, what did I get from this person? What are the ways, you know, we talk about continuing bonds. What are the ways that I have a continuing bond with this person? How mm-hmm. do I still hold them in my life? Yeah. And, you know, I'll tell you a story that sort of brings all of these questions you've asked yeah. together. And I didn't know if I would mention this, but you know, I had this honor of setting up the Com Clinic. Yeah. I mean, what a career joy to build what you think cancer patients would need by asking cancer patients yeah. and the community. And then having the funds to build that. Yeah. And with, a, you know, incredible interprofessional par- partners who value all members of the team. Like that, if I had a purple crayon, you remember the story, Harold, <laughs> yes. and the purple crayon? We're of the, not everybody knows. Look it yeah. up. It's a great story. <laughs> but anyways, if I had the purple crayon, that's what I would have had. Fast forward. And a couple of years ago, my mother was diagnosed with cancer. And she was treated at the Com Clinic. So here I got to bring the most amazing caregivers, got to help bring this team together. And they took such loving care mm-hmm. of my mother and me. And I got to experience that, which I am describing. So I know, like they asked her, what is it that is most important to you? Yeah. What do you want to do? And she said, I want to take my granddaughter to go see Hamilton when it comes to Austin. And so if they didn't work her treatment around getting the two of them to the end, that picture is one of my favorite pictures ever. And my mother looks, my mother was tiny. 
and yeah. little tiny <laughs> fireball. <laughs> tiny. Um, and she is sitting there with, you know, sort of looking pretty small, looking yeah. pretty pale, sort of a bandana on her head with my daughter at this Hamilton show. The resilient, the strength in her face, the pride of her ability to be there. They listened to what she wanted. It was very important to her. It was very important to my daughter. And that loss, my daughter was so close with my mom. That yeah. loss has been so significant for my daughter. And so we have these conversations all the time. So I'm not just talking about this clinically. Yes, right. Um, this we have lived. these conversations yeah. all the time. And some days are harder than others, but we will wrestle with it. Like we'll get messy with grief yeah. if we have to. Yeah. And I encourage her all the time. And she's built this way, which is really actually something I really respect in her. I encourage her all the time to find the continuing bonds. What yeah. are the ways she can stay connected and carry her to my forward. mom? Yeah. yeah. How are the ways that my mother is in her life today? How are the lessons that she's learned from her? What are the little things in her life that mean something to her that resonate yeah. and make her think of my mom in a way that is positive and connecting? I love so much about that story. First of all, tell us your mom's name. Nancy. Nancy. And my daughter called her Bama. Bama. Okay. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing Nancy slash Bama with us. <laughs> but there's something that you said in that story in particular that made me think about the importance of your mom and you as the family going through an experience through the calm model where they were asking what matters to you. What a difference your grief Absolutely. And your daughter's grief, and maybe her own anticipatory grief of her own death, because let's not forget that we grieve our own impending death. What a difference that made by just allowing so that there's less regrets, there's less what ifs, there's less wonderings, because there was an involved conversation. So just as a reminder, when we think about interventions, it's not just about getting somebody therapy, but it's like, how do we intervene and bring people's wishes and values to the fore and create, to the best of our ability, we can't always, the good life up until the life can't be anymore. And that the residual effect for all those who love that person so they, is profound. Yeah. Yeah. So it's about what matters most to you. They might not have known that was, you know, there were other things, yeah. of course, but that's one story. And to create the care around that, yeah. around her connection with me and my family. That's yeah. what she said was most important to her, was being connected and spending time. This was one example of it, right? She was very concrete. Um, <laughs> it's a great show. So, you you know, but, but it she told them that's what was most important to her, and they built her care around that goal. And then you got to see your mom's wishes coming to mm -hmm. fruition, which mm -hmm. again, as I'm saying, is lessening kind of this injury to your psyche. When we come back in just a minute, I asked Barbara to talk both personally and professionally about the moral distress and empathetic strain happening among healthcare providers in the wake of this unprecedented pandemic. She explores some of the responses that systems are enacting, and is frank about some of the steps that are still missing. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, Barbara Jones. So having worked in nonprofit, clinical, and corporate settings throughout my career, I understand how the cultures and practices of organizations often struggle to support the mental and emotional health of their employees. Whether it's clinical staff witnessing the pain and grief of others day to day, or simply the losses corporate employees face in their own lives. 
most organizations aren't equipped to address those needs. Unfortunately, when their well-being is ignored, it's not just those employees who suffer. It's also their patients, their customers, and the company's bottom line too. That's why I'm so honored every time I get invited to bring an empathetic leadership workshop to a corporate setting or grief and empathy and patient care to medical schools like Baylor College of Medicine and healthcare institutions like Dell Medical School's Live Strong Cancer Institutes. If your organization is looking for guidance on how to help build an empathetic, grief-smart culture, I'd love to work with you. Visit www.reimagininggrief.com forward slash grief smart culture to learn more. Speaking of injury, I've been thinking a lot, well, always because I've been in the helping profession (laughs) most of my career, but particularly as we are, I don't know if we can even say emerging from the pandemic, we're having this conversation in November 2021, but I've been thinking so much about of course, care providers from physicians to nurses to social workers, always in perpetuity, whether you're in cancer care, but as of course, especially when we think about the inundation of patients into their medical system. So I've been thinking a lot about how systems do and don't support patients, but more importantly, the pain and suffering and the moral injury that is must be happening among providers. And we're seeing that in the evidence of people quitting, of rates of suicide among providers, et cetera, burnout. Tell me a little bit about what you're witnessing. And I think maybe you've been doing some research as Mm -hmm. well. So can you share a little bit about that? Because I know many of our listeners are multiple things. We might be personal grievers, but many folks who listen to the show are nurses and doctors and social workers. So I want us to understand the grief and loss and moral injury that's happening among the providers too. There's an incredible amount of moral distress and empathic strain happening to healthcare providers. And it's continuing. And it's almost, in some points of this pandemic, I think it's been almost like going through a war that nobody sees. You know, you're on your own and you're witnessing all of this pain and suffering and death without the help that you need. And so that is basically (laughs) the definition of moral distress. Yeah. And so there are some things about the pandemic that have made this particularly more difficult. The isolation, the exposure to personal risk, um, the structural systemic healthcare structural problems, both that don't support healthcare providers, but also the healthcare inequities where we actually see the effects of racism in healthcare. Our providers are holding all of that while trying to provide the best care and also serving as surrogate family members and, you know, to say goodbye to people as they're dying. Like the amount of stress and pressure that we have put on our healthcare providers is unimaginable, actually. And I... But we need to face it. We need to imagine it, right? Otherwise, we're just going to continue to... Absolutely. And I think we've seen, you know, the stresses are different for different groups of people. I know that in oncology, we have seen physicians specifically report moral distress around having to delay treatment decisions or hoping they're making the best choices via telehealth those types of things. Among nurses, we have certainly seen the stress of being all and everything to everybody, which nurses are anyways. You right. know, 
But even more so when even family so. members cannot be present in the rooms. Absolutely. Of, yeah. And then sort of being that point for every everything that's happening and dealing with all of the pain, the pain of everyone around them, the pain of the person they're caring for with very little relief. And then for social workers, and this is where I've had a chance to do some studies, two studies, one of adult oncology social workers and another and pediatric oncology social workers across the country partnering with some other colleagues. We have seen, you know, one study we did of oncology social workers, and we see the incredible emotional burden. So by nature, social workers tend to gravitate to the emotions, right? (laughs) And so holding the burden, the emotional burden of the entire system. Now, they're also worried about their doctor and nurse friends, you know, and about the patients, and they're sort of being asked to serve as family surrogates as well, and then pull in and hold the team together, an incredible, incredible emotional burden on social workers. And so some of the, one qualitative study I did with some colleagues here at UT and also at Colorado State, you know, one of the themes that came out was, this was the hardest year of my life. Mm. And another theme that came out, and this is the hint at the resilience, we were built for this. Mm. So both from social Both work. and. Yeah. Love. So this is the hardest year of my life professionally. Yeah. And I've got what I need. If I can hold on, if I can take care of myself, I was built to respond to a crisis yeah. and to help people in crisis. But we're seeing incredible distress. And, you know, we do know that there are some things that help as well, similar to what we are talking earlier, witnessing, empathy. That's from friends, colleagues, and the system, a system that actually builds in care. And I don't mean recommend a yoga class. No problem. Love yoga. It's not going to fix this. No, no. It could be a tool for some people. But what we end up doing is burdening people as if they are now failing self-care. Well, the systems create the places in which people, and this goes beyond healthcare, by the way. I mean, I go into corporations and Mm -hmm. have these conversations too. The system builds in some ways the cause for people's burnout and then burdens them to go fix the burnout instead of kind of addressing the system. It's blaming the victim. And then yeah. we say like, well, if you haven't done that, then you're clearly yeah, How come you're not just enough? taking bubble yeah. baths and going to yoga? Exactly. Like, And when am I going to do that? So it's deeper than that. It's empathy. Yeah. It's recognition of the trauma. It's trauma and recognizing it and calling it that. It's adequate staffing. Yeah. It's adequate time off. It's effective and honest communication during the middle of the pandemic. It's the effective tools to care for oneself. Because don't you think, I mean, this has been my experience. I mean, having had to go for help, you know, being the clinical director, but then going for help just soon after my husband died. I think even in the helping profession, even amongst social workers, there's still some stigma about needing your own mental health care. And and for certain, I uh, can imagine among nurses, among physicians as well. So even maybe the intervention is even just naming like, all of us will benefit from some mental health support. And Isn't it support. like Rachel Naomi Remen who says, you know, to be exposed to trauma and expect to not, I'm going to I'm gonna yeah. get her quote wrong, so we'll get it right and we'll put it up on the site <laughs> or something, but to be exposed to trauma and not expect to feel pain is like expecting to walk on water and not get wet. Yeah. We're all going to experience the pain. So then what do we do with it? If we do not metabolize it, if we do not figure out a way to move it through us sort of cognitively, Um, existentially, physically, by the way, then we're going to just carry it with us and it's going to kind of bleed out. Absolutely. You know, wherever we go, patients, families. And that's why the problems have to be at the micro, meso, and macro level, classic social work answer. But, you know, we need to have systems that recognize this. We need to build an interprofessional collaborative culture that makes space for people to say, 
I need a break. Yeah. And I got your back. Tag team. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're just as valuable as I am on this team. And how can we hold each other through this experience? What we know about trauma, just if you go back to basic trauma, is that people grow and can move through trauma the more that they have choices and control, like even little choices. Agency is so key because the trauma is that you were out of control. Out of control. That's something bad that happened to you and you had no control. So this is true for grief, for trauma, for moral distress, choices and control, where we can give it. But I really do think that empathy is such the key. And we talk about empathy, but practicing it is the hardest thing in the world. And, uh, you know, we sometimes call empathy a soft skill. And I am Mm -mm. quite famous for saying and, and for borrowing from other colleagues who have said it, you know, that empathy is the hardest skill because it requires a vulnerability. It requires me to look inside and say, if I'm a healthcare administrator, what changes do I have to make to make it possible for the people who work here to survive this and possibly thrive? I've got to do something different. I've got to hear the pain and recognize I have a place in it. Yes. And kind of moving. I like Susan David's sort of sympathy, empathy, compassion, and sympathy mm-hmm. is pity, which, by the way, nobody in the planet wants to be pitied. And mm-hmm. empathy is understanding. And compassion is also moving in some yeah. kind of action form. Absolutely. I liked what you were just saying right there. And I think it also requires not just what is my place in this system and how can I alleviate suffering and pain of others, but also to practice that I think empathy and compassion requires us to practice seeing our own pain and suffering, like even the pain of being somebody who has the responsibility of creating a system that maybe isn't healing or nurturing for the folks that they want to serve. Because nobody goes into this work thinking, I want to cause harm to my colleagues, patients, employees. And that's why it's moral distress. So do you have like a definition for moral distress for our listeners? How would you define it? I mean, there's there's quite a few, but I have one that I've used before that I think sort of sums it up for us. And that is moral distress occurs when an individual identifies an ethical, correct course of action, but cannot take that action due to its violation of core values and beliefs. That's healthcare in the pandemic. That's why we're seeing this. And having to make these choices that just are completely not in alignment with what we know to be True and what we value. And we don't know the long-term outcome. So, you know, are we going to be seeing PTSD or PTSS, you know, post-traumatic stress symptoms? Are we going to be seeing, we do know that we've seen incredible depression, anxiety, substance abuse. You know, there's a lot of ways in our culture to distract oneself from our pain. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and, and the way through pain is through pain. Amen. And that's hard. I mean, and I can preach that and I'm working on it too. So I don't mean it like I got it. I mean it like, let me remind myself as well, you know, the way through pain is through pain. You have to be able to to go there. And there's but we have to have space. Right. Mm -hmm. We are encouraged to avoid it because by the way, we're like everything's the problem that needs solving and just use this. Oh, and the pandemic's over. So right. And just use this remedy Mm -hmm. and just follow this top five or top ten list and just you know, go through these stages, whatever we want to do. How do you think, whether it's comm models or other people who have some domain of offering shaping systems so that we are reducing moral distress, what might be an easier or a hard, you can pick which one or both, shift or change or offering that could happen that could just begin to ease the moral distress? Well, I mean, I think there's so many things, but one of them is making space for people to be heard and then for leaders to have the courage to listen, to develop their own empathy, to get close to it. You know, I have the opportunity to actually teach uh, a course in this Master of Science in Healthcare Transformation offered through the Value Institute. And we have healthcare executives from all over the country. It's a co-sponsored program of the Value Institute in Delmed and McCombs Business School. And so we have healthcare executives 
and providers and students and community health workers and social workers come and learn together about value-based care. And the course I get to teach in is creating value for individuals and families. And really, it's four weeks of empathy. And it's about how do you tune into the empathetic skills that brought you to this in the first place yeah, and not get too far away from patients and too far away from providers? How do you stay there? How do you get back there? And how do you communicate it? So that it all And then allow there. what you experience from that interaction to serve how you see what you have purview over. Right? And then there are structural things like, yeah. really, do we have the staffing? Probably not, but do, you know, yeah. so, spoiler alert, I'm guessing no, not. No, you know, do yeah. we have the staffing in nursing, in social work? Do we have enough people here to care for the people who are here? Yeah. And have we built in actual tools to help people deal with what they're witnessing? Do we have adequate time off? Are we building a culture that is not shaming when someone is hurting? How do we reduce that in the workplace? Yeah. Well, and this is this conversation's come up many times before, and I'm teaching loss and grief at UT, which Yay. I know is your you originally brought here, and um, when you came to UT, it's such an honor to be having these really important conversations with young people. But one of the things they keep asking me, and they asked a guest lecture I had this week, is you know I know that as you said, social workers are trained to see everything on the micro and meso and meta level, but also we live and swim in the pool of emotions, right? But so many times in different healthcare systems, it's one social worker for every um, X number of doctors and nurses and administrators. And the burden on the social worker to not just do the emotional labor with the patients, but also to the, do the emotional labor for their fellow colleagues in mm-hmm. that medical system seems out of whack. The reason I said this is the student's like, is there not a social worker for every little unit and all of healthcare? And I'm like, oh, no. Sometimes it's the same thing, by the way, for social workers in schools and other places, yep. too. But how are you seeing your social workers, maybe even just within here, having to balance that, doing the emotional labor, both for the patients and their families and the providers? And what would you maybe hope for or shift if you could. Yeah. And again, full disclosure, I don't have all the solutions. Um, I'm struggling through this. And you know, I also have this role where we have a Department of Health Social Work in the medical school. And we're super proud of the fact that it's the first of its kind in a medical school. And we really create an academic home for social workers and try to really take care of social workers in the healthcare setting. So I'm actively wrestling with this right now. What can I bring to them that doesn't feel like something they have to do that if they don't do it right, they're going to feel like they failed right. self-care. That's actually um, yes. therapeutically yeah. beneficial. And so yeah. um, so we are doing some work in this space right now in my team as well and bringing in mindfulness and making time for people to take care of themselves and trying to listen deeply to what they need and change and advocate for what we can in the system. There's many things we can't change, yeah. but always thinking about how do we build a different system that cares? How do we have the right staffing yeah. so that the burden isn't so high? Because that is what leads to compassion fatigue and burnout. Yes, And we can't always change the system, but the more people we have who understand that we are in sometimes funding the wrong things in healthcare, then we need to go back to that idea about what matters most for patients. And apply it to the healthcare system. And apply system. it to the healthcare. And again, that's from my colleagues at the Value Institute, you know, this idea about capability, comfort, and calm. So how do we apply that also to the providers, to the yeah. social workers? And the other thing I want to offer, 
And I think you have talked about this in your show is I can't help myself, you know, social work by its definition is strength-based, right? So I'm always looking for where's the resilience, how do we grow without minimizing the pain? You know, I did pain care social work. I think it's important to hang there too. But then we start to look at there is also compassion satisfaction. Yes. There is also resilience. You know, one of the other things we found in the study of oncology social workers is they, one of the things that helped them, sustain them was realizing the strength they had. Mm Mm-hmm being grateful for their skills and how they were able to help people. So helping people turn their attention to I mean, this is this mindfulness and Mm -hmm. narrative refocusing, which is sort of at the heart of everything that I do. It's not ignoring, as you said, the pain, but there's a million stories. So if we could go back and make visible the story that I have these strengths and these capacities and I made impact and I was able to pull the tools I didn't even know I had and bring them to bear. And maybe I was also able to set limits when I needed to. Yeah. Which is not something social workers are particularly great at all the what? time. So don't uh-huh, call us out like uh-huh, that, Barbara. Uh-huh. Okay. But again, talking to self. Yeah. 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 Anybody listening to this who knows me will be like, really? <laughs> You're talking about exactly. This? Okay, we do our best. Self-compassion for yep. ourselves. Right doing back our at, best. Coming, coming at us. Yeah. I appreciate the way you talked about how do we think about both creating systems for social workers and interdisciplinary teams to reduce moral distress and to, as you said, elevate compassion satisfaction. Because you've been in an education role so often and also in the research role, I'm curious what you think about how might we bring this way of seeing the world to other types of providers besides social workers. I had the great honor earlier this year of bringing some talks to the resident cohort at Baylor College of Medicine around empathy and patient care. And that was just so enriching and exciting to me to see these young doctors be interested in having the tools and feeling equipped to see the 360 version of the patient and the family. So how do you think about education kind of upstream so that we don't end up building these systems that create in sort of their very nature moral distress? Well, you're asking me about all of the things that I'm passionate about. And one of them is interprofessional (laughs) collaborative teaching and interprofessional education. And so we are currently teaching physician, nursing, pharmacy, and social work students together. And we teach them many of these things. And we teach them about practitioner resilience and empathy. And we teach them how to talk to each other before they get in their silos, right? Right. So if we can train them early on to value each other, it's much more likely they're going to then go out and create teams that support each other because they will value the contribution of everyone. So social work has something to bring. Nursing has something to bring. Child life has something to bring. And it's not bring. hierarchical Physical as therapy it's been has something to bring. Yeah. traditionally thought so of. So we break that down and we say, what if we came at this and said, what can I learn from you? How can I grow from you? And like we were talking about with adolescents, I'll help you hold it. Yeah. I'll help you hold it. I love that you're really, I'm imagining this, again, back to throwing John Powell's language in here, this bridging is Mm -hmm. what you're really building in through these educational interdisciplinary settings is really bridging and bringing together the shared wisdom and knowledge, both as a healing modality, by the way, for each other as professionals in the work, but also to the benefit, of course, of patients and their families. And we talk about inequity in this course, and we talk about motivational interviewing, and we talk about palliative care and communication. And And not just putting that as all the domain of the social worker and figuring out how each provider... Or all the domain of the doctor or the nurse. I mean, there are different ways that our professions are burdened, as it were. And so it helps me if I can look at my physician and nursing and pharmacy colleagues and say, wow, that must be really difficult that you have to carry that aspect of it. I'm carrying this aspect. Because that's, again, we get to common humanity and compassion. Have that compassion and empathy with one another. And most of our students, they enjoy the course, particularly it's a two-semester course, so it's long. But what really happens is when they get out in practice, they call us, they write to us, they text us, and they say, oh, 
<laughs> I see. That's what you meant. You yeah. Know? So it's sort of a projecting into the future. It's a lot like grief work. It's slow. Yeah. Slow and it's long. Slow. And one thing, just I love that you said that. One thing I often do for myself, because I try to practice everything that I preach, as it were, is because it's long and slow and messy and sloggy and nonlinear, you have to pick your head up and look up and look back and do some kind of mindful narrative reflecting of like, oh, here's how I've grown or here's how things have shifted. And I can imagine for your providers, for those folks, every once in a while as they're through going through the course of their careers, they have to look up and have those aha moments like, yep. oh, I see the way things shifted. Absolutely. And we say to them, sometimes our students will go out into healthcare and say, you told us all about this interprofessional collaborative culture. We got out here and, well, that's not happening all the time. Yeah. Sometimes it is, but it's not, wait a second, where, and we were like, secret, we expect you to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Secret, we really want you to fix it. Yeah. You know? Because I do think that when I look at the students, the health profession students that are coming up now, they want this. They want to talk about collaborative culture. They want to talk about empathy. They want to talk about equity. Yeah. They're hungry for it, yeah. and they are changing healthcare. Not that we aren't as well, but it does take that infusion of yeah. our students to challenge us to grow and yeah. move out of our comfort zones. And yeah. so I'm excited about where health profession students are today and where they're going and their enthusiasm. But we have to take care of them. We we have to watch for these issues of distress. They are having distress and grief and <clears throat> And we try to bring it up early so they recognize it. This is a thing that can and does and will happen. How will you protect? What's your plan now for when it happens? Yeah. You know, in my classes, I'm often asking students before they even get out of the class, I want you to have a plan right now. Have a little cheat sheet about yeah. what are the things that sustain you. And revisit you. it because mm -hmm. what supports you early on in your career is going to be different as you change roles and change systems. Right. And that's true for all of us. Mm -hmm. I call myself a grief guide because I believe people come to me for support with a whole richness of tools. And sometimes my job is to just help peel back and make visible. But I also remind people that what serves us in month one might not serve us in year one or year five or year 10. And that's okay. That's not a failing of the tool or a failing of you. That's really just you are changing and growing. And so the tools that you need to reduce your moral distress, to soften your grief, to reduce your stress, to discharge your stress are going to change over time. So it takes a sort of mindful, dedicated commitment to checking back in with yourself or your colleagues what do you or need whoever. Now? Yeah. What do you need now? Yeah. And if it changes, in fact, it should change, right? Yeah. Because we should grow. Exactly. Well, we are growing, so we got to keep up with it. Whether you like it or not, we are growing and changing all the time. We're always in a state of becoming, really. Mm -hmm. So as we close the show today, I'd love to ask you, is there some piece of research or some curiosity that is emerging or you're sort of in the midst of that you are really thinking about exploring, like, what's next? What are you curious about? Sort of in the realm maybe of grief and moral distress or providers, just... So many things. I know. Um, you ask a researcher. Shh. The two areas that I am most curious about right now and looking at, one is not surprisingly, because of the things we've talked about and because of my whole career, the role of social work in healthcare and how we tell that story and how we both quantify and qualify those outcomes and how we build systems that are more supportive and recognizing of social work. Okay, I'm yeah. a big voice for lifting up social work in healthcare. The other area continues my longstanding passion around how do we build better oncology care for specifically adolescents and young adults with cancer. Okay. And one of the things I'm looking at right now is what is the meaning of participating in 
advocacy work for young adults. So our field has grown enough that we see young adults who are through their treatment and now are giving back. So at the Com Clinic, we have right. a robust, amazing, amazing, I you know I've them. Met them yes. yes, young adult advisory board, and they are not a rubber stamp advisory board. They are engaged. They are helping with designing the clinic, hiring, communication, communication. They are in it. Education. They come and speak in many of my classes. We've even had a marriage out of it. I mean, this isn't a successful yeah. advisory board. And so along with our colleagues at MD Anderson, we're launching a study right now to understand the impact of participating at that level of engagement and advocacy for cancer centers. Like how do we improve cancer centers with really robust young adult advisory boards? But what's the impact of activism and engagement on the young adults themselves? Mm. And this is something I've actually wondered my whole career because I've almost always worked in communities where there was some activism, mothers against drunk driving, right? HIV, oncology. Yeah. There's always been some aspect of the work, bereaved parents, you know, there's always been some aspect of the work that many people, not all, come to a place where they want to give back. Yes. And I'm curious about what is the meaning making, what is the resilience, how does that help people to get engaged in the work you do. I mean, I am what a living example of, of this I'm process. The, I find yeah. that so yeah. inspiring and curious and interesting. What does it mean to take what you've experienced and find a way to improve the world with it? What is the internal meaning for that? So that's what And the I'm, impacts. And that's what you're interested that's in what studying. I'm curious about right now. I love that. I'm so curious. And, you know, I'm going to throw myself into every research project awesome. you have. So I, I appreciate that. <laughs> you know, just as a kind of tying things together, so many threads that we've weaved together in today's show. So you were just sharing this Young Adult Cancer Advisory Board. And for those of you who've been longtime listeners of the show, I had the absolute honor of interviewing Christina Bain, mm. who was a very active, literally, I think, until the week before she died, member of that Cancer Advisory Board. And she shared on the show and off the air how important that was to her. And that did have an impact in her own understanding of both her illness course, but also just her, I don't know, want to say purpose in life, but like part of how she showed up in the world. So yes. not big metadata, but I, this one story. But, but big data. And I've always yeah. seen it. And her family continues to do so. Yeah. So what does it mean for them? So I think we have to build more ways to have people have the opportunity to use what they've learned, yeah. their pain, their trauma, their experience to help others. Because we know from the research, we actually know that that is a tool of resilience. Yeah. Barbara Jones, we could talk for days and days and days, and we do off air and online and on air today. It's been absolutely fascinating and thrilling, and I've learned so much from our conversation today. I know this won't be the last one of these kinds, probably not even on the show. We'll probably have more to come in the future. Maybe come back and tell us what you're learning from the research. Would love to. And I am just amused that we have been talking about doing this for so long. And full disclosure, I called Lisa early this week and said, now, can you remind what what did you want me to talk about? What were we going to talk about? And basically, she said everything, and that's what we did. So I, we had no idea where this was going to go because no. we've had so many conversations, but yeah. we went a lot of places. So thank you for the opportunity to talk about things I'm so passionate about. And grief is something that I think needs more attention. Yeah. And I am so honored that you invited me. Oh, such a pleasure. You know, this show is called Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. And, you know, a lot of people chuckle and most people nod their head because they're like, yes, thank you. That's the perfect description. But really, just to be transparent, I came up with this name from my own personal experience. But 
part of the goal of having these conversations and my work at Reimagining Grief, my teaching, my public speaking, and everything that I do is so that can, grief can become less of a sneaky bitch. And I think the reason that it catches us off guard and hurts us so much, besides the fact that grief is painful, that is, as you said, you have to go through the pain, it's painful because we're not made aware about all of the implications and the impact. So, so grateful for all of the work you're doing and for having this conversation to help us make more visible grief so that we might all navigate it just a little bit more easily. Yeah. Thank you, Lisa. Well, my friends, I hope you learned as much as I did from my conversation with my dear friend, Barbara Jones. Her passion for creating systems of care that attend as equally to the patients as they do to their families and the clinicians who support them, well, it inspires me every day. As we close the show, I wanted to take a moment to thank my listeners. Because of you, we've reached a very cool milestone. Over 100,000 downloads of this show. Wow. That gave me a moment to pause and reflect on the journey so far. I've had the honor of sitting in intimate conversations about grief, death, and life with nearly 40 guests since the show began. From CEOs to stay-at-home moms, filmmakers, best-selling authors, cultural figures, entrepreneurs, clinicians, fathers, brothers. There's so much I've learned, more than I could possibly put into the few moments we have left in the show. But one thing that stands out, in part because of my conversation with today's guest, is that we all desperately want and deserve to be seen and held in our grief. If you love the show, I want to ask you a favor. Please head over to Apple Podcasts, find the show, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, leave a rating and write a review. It would mean the world to me. I want to thank Giles Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show today. I also want to thank that team over at Studio Pod for helping me produce it. Thank you again for listening to today's episode with my guest, Barbara Jones. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.